Right on, Exodus chapter 5. Uh, for those of you who have been here over the last number of weeks, you know what's uh, happening in our series and in this story as we journey through the book of Exodus. For those of you who are maybe just visiting for the long weekend or whatever, let me uh, bring you up to speed a little bit. We've been following the story of Moses, uh, the story of God's people, the children of Israel living in the land of Egypt under the slavery of uh, Pharaoh uh, for 400 years. And as they began to cry out to God, he began to work and he raised up for them a deliverer, a man named Bo Moses, uh, born of a Hebrew woman, but raised in the Egyptian palace as, the, as a grandson of the Pharaoh. And um, the story of Moses is this, as we've seen, is his life kind of breaks up into 40-year sections. You got 40 years where he was a somebody in the land of Egypt, and then 40 years of him living in the desert as a nobody, and then the last 40 years is this story, the part of his life that we're entering where we see that God likes to make something out of nothing. When somebody is a somebody and then becomes a nothing, God says, in that I can work and I can make something out of nothing. And so we've seen Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush, how God revealed himself to him, how God uh, commissioned uh, Moses at the burning bush to be this instrument by which God would redeem his people, where he would lead them out of slavery and, and be this, uh, this promised deliverer. And as we've seen in the last couple weeks, as God began to call Moses, Moses did something that you and I do all the time. He began to negotiate with God on the terms by which he would follow and by which he would obey God. And... Uh, it didn't work because God's not a negotiator. I don't know if you know that about God, but he, he does not negotiate uh, with man. See, God, his word tells us that he purchased us with his blood. He gave life for life and Jesus paid the ultimate price for you and he gave his life 100%. And the principle of the Bible is this, life for life, life for life. Jesus gave 100%. Now, like Moses, we like to negotiate the terms with God on which we respond uh, to his work or in which we will, uh, you know, surrender to Jesus. You know, Jesus, I'll give you 70% of my life. But this part is off limits. This part, Jesus, you don't get to touch. You know, fill in the blank, whatever it might be or I'll give you 85%, Jesus, but I am not doing this. And we negotiate this term. I'm going to give you 90% of my life, Jesus, but you don't get to talk about this part. You don't get to put your finger on this part, Jesus. I get to keep this part of my life for myself. It's not yours. It's off limits. But the biblical principle is this, life for life. And Jesus purchased us with his blood. It's all or nothing. When we make a decision to follow Jesus Christ, that decision now becomes, okay, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to surrender you. That surrender to you. That decision now becomes the filter for all of life, for work, for family, for decision-making, for relationships, for everything. The decision to follow Jesus becomes the filter by which we make every other decision. And that's what it's like to follow God. 
Now Moses, he has this encounter with God as we've seen. And then he did the very human thing. He starts to negotiate the terms by which he will follow and by which he will serve God. And the Lord would have none of it. So you know the deal. We've been going through it. God gives them signs. God sends his brother Aaron. And they go. They return to the land of Egypt. They, they meet the elders of Israel. They gather the people. They share with them the message that God has visited. God has seen their suffering. And God is going to deliver them. They, they perform the signs and the miracles that God gave them to do. And the Bible tells us at the end of Exodus chapter 4. That when the people saw the signs. They believed the Lord. And they worshipped. And we pick it up in chapter 5. It says this. Afterward. Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to worship me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews is met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from the burdens. Now let's just get this picture in our head a little bit. Let's, let's get this in our hearts, what's going on. We know Mo Moses fled Egypt 40 years earlier because he had physically laid hands on an Egyptian taskmaster who was beating an Israelite slave, and he murdered the man. Now, during the 40 years that Moses uh, was in the desert of Midian and, and living there, uh, the pharaohs who had sought to kill him, the pharaoh who had taken the throne after that pharaoh who sought to kill him, they had passed away. And the belief was that on the ruling throne of Egypt was a new pharaoh, uh, the pharaoh Amenhotep II, who was about 22 years old. Now, it's kind of interesting just to consider this because Moses is how old? We know 80 years old. He's an old guy coming out of the desert. And this confrontation is between old and young, but it's, it's more than just generational. This is, it's not that simple. This is a, a conflict and a confrontation of spiritual beliefs. It's a conflict of values. It's a confrontation of two different worldviews. It's a confrontation between lifestyles and attitudes. You know, the Bible tells us that Moses was is actually called the meekest man on the face of the earth. The meekest man who, who ever lived. Now remember that meekness, that does not mean he was weak. Moses was not weak. Meekness is not weakness. It's power under control. Power that is regulated by God. Power that is from the Holy Spirit and controlled by him. And so Moses is that picture of meekness. He is the picture uh, of a man who is living the Jesus-dependent life. Now, Pharaoh is the complete opposite of the Jesus-dependent life. Pharaoh is the picture of the self-sufficient life. Uh, Pharaoh is the picture of the self-centered life. Uh, he, you know, remember, 
When Jesus Christ comes into your life, the aim of his work and the aim of his, the work of the Holy Spirit is, is to kick the feet out from underneath, I would say, self-dependency. And the work of God is this, is to bring you into a place where your life is Jesus-dependent where you are looking to Jesus, where the posture of your life is in the midst of every situation and circumstance and trouble or victory or whatever it is that you go through, that your chin would lift and you would look to heaven for supply, that you would look to Jesus Christ to lead you. And, and so the Holy Spirit is working to bring us to that place of Jesus dependency. Now Moses uh, was willing to be and nobody, and from that place in his life, a place of failure, a place of defeat, a place of being content with messing life up, God said, I, I can work in this guy. I'm going to make something out of nothing in this situation. Not so 22-year-old Pharaoh. Egyptian society um, and their system of rule was centered on uh, religious, the religious beliefs of the Egyptians, and it was very different from our understanding. You know, most of us pack this kind of Judeo-Christian uh, worldview, and in the Judeo-Christian worldview, the distinction is this. We say there's a creator, and there is his creation. There is that which is sacred, and that which is secular. There is that which is holy, and there, that, there is that which is unholy. There is God and there is man, and those are two different things. And we need the God-man to come and save us from our sin and from the destructive power of sin and, and death. And so in the Christian worldview and in the worldview of the Israelites, they made that separation. There is creator God, and there is his creation man. And we need the God-man to save us. The Egyptian worldview is much like the worldview that we live in the midst of. It blurred those lines. It blurred the lines between the sacred and the secular. It blurred the lines between the creator and his uh, creation. And they failed to make those distinctions. And, and that is uh, actually what Romans chapter 1 talks all about. You know, rather than worshiping God as the creator, the Egyptians deified the creation. Uh, they were a culture that had many gods and they made their gods out of created things that God had made. And they worshiped and they served created things rather than the creator who is to be praised. You know, they, they deified the Nile River as we know. You know, they made images to look like mortal man, but they combined birds and animals and, and reptiles, and in this religious system, they confused that which is sacred and that which is uh, secular. In fact, they went so far that they even declared Pharaoh was God. Each Pharaoh was said to be actually the child of the sun. He was a, he was a friend of the greatest of gods of Egypt. In fact, Pharaoh sat amongst the gods in their temples and he received worship alongside of the gods. And so, you know, when you think of Pharaoh, you got to recognize this is not your perfect picture of the public servant and what it looks like to, you know, work in public service for the benefit of the people. 
Public service was not the mandate of the Pharaoh. No, the entire public lived to serve the Pharaoh. It was the other way around. His power and his authority were supreme. Uh, you know, there was no constitution or law or legislature that was higher or equally, anywhere equal to him. In fact, there's, there's an inscription that's been found by a pharaoh on an ancient Egyptian temple, and it says this. It gives us an idea of what, what the pharaohs thought of themselves. This pharaoh, speaking for himself, says, I am that which was and is and shall be, and no man has lifted my veil. So the Pharaoh, in his own mind, was more than a man. He considered himself a god, and the Egyptians agreed with him. So that's why, in this sense, when Moses enters Pharaoh's court in his shepherd's bathrobe, um, and this confrontation is about to begin, any sense that this was going to be a piece of cake and just a cakewalk to deal with Pharaoh, I think quickly left Moses as soon as the conversation started. Now, I don't know about you. I, I don't know about your own personal encounter with God. I, I trust and, and hope that you've had one. But if you thought this, if you thought, man, I'm going to follow Jesus and life is going to be easy, you've probably had some reality checks. <laughs> you know, if, if you thought you were going to follow Jesus and now life would be easy peasy, lemon squeezy, is the saying that's in my mind. You've probably found quite the opposite to be true. Because Does that ring true with your heart? And that's because of this. Look at When you decide you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to have encounters with Pharaoh. We know this. Pharaoh in this story is a picture of Satan. And, and the Israelites have been under, the people of God have been under the thumb of Pharaoh until God paid them a visit. He, he saw their affliction. He heard their crying. And he sent them a deliverer, Moses. And before Christ, you too were under the thumb of Pharaoh, so, so to speak. Un, under Satan's thumb. He didn't have to worry about you. He didn't care about the cry of your heart. He did not care about the affliction of slavery to sin or the affliction that the fear of death brought. And you know this, that outside of Jesus, there was an affliction upon your soul. It was called death and, and sex and drugs and, and alcohol and Robert's Creek weed and spiritual experiences. Maybe relieved it for a minute for a little bit, but it never brought true relief from affliction. You know, it just brought numbness from affliction for a short time. But your soul is crying out and God has seen and God has heard and he's come to visit. And he sent you a deliverer. His name is Jesus. But here's the thing. Satan wants you enslaved. You ever participate in a cakewalk when you were a kid? I remember those. Those are awesome. You know, we do those at our uh, harvest Halloween party thing that we have here. And it's kind of a bad scene because we always have way too many cakes here. You guys are awesome. And every kid that practically come leaves with a cake. I think this year, all three of my children came home with a cake. And the problem is, you know who's going to eat the cake, right? Hey, man, a cakewalk is fun. But I don't want to give you a false bill of sale this morning. 
If you thought following Jesus was going to be a piece of cake, you have to know that old Pharaoh prefers having you in slavery. And so as you follow Jesus, don't be surprised when you hit walls of resistance, when he puts the squeeze on you. And in this chapter, we're going to see two different responses from people. As they felt affliction, as God had said, I'm going to set you free, and they began to get squeezed, people began to respond in the midst of that in different ways. And we're going to see the, the type of character decisions it takes to build the life of faith, to build a life of steadfast faith. So here's Moses. He comes to Pharaoh. says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Now we can barely imagine the scene. You know, he's dusty. He's 80 years old. He's wearing a bathrobe. His, his, you know, Pharaoh, on the other hand, his, his throne represented the highest power in the world at that time. Everything existed to serve him. The children of Israel weren't individuals. Um, they didn't have inherent value as image bearers of God. They were just numbers in the midst of a workforce of slaves that served uh, the Pharaoh. And Pharaoh and the Egyptians served the pantheon of polytheism, the, all the different gods, uh, all the various gods, and they did not worship the one true God, the God of Israel. And so his response to Moses is a good one. <clears throat> Excuse me, as Moses comes to him. And it's a question that every single one of us needs to ask. Uh, and, you know, we're going to see here that he asked the right question, but he asked it with the wrong heart. You know, this question was not asked with a heart of humility looking to discover, but it was, it was spoken with arrogant pride and a refusal to obey. And Pharaoh said this, who's the Lord? Who's the Lord that I should obey him? See, Pharaoh had never heard the name of God, Jehovah, Yahweh, the God of Israel. He never heard that name, and to him it was laughable. You have, to, you have to understand that. He's not joking as he says this question. You know, in his mind, the children of Israel are under his thumb, and they are under the thumb of Egypt. Israel was a nation of slaves. And because they were a nation of slaves, clearly the conclusion for him was this. The gods of Egypt are greater than the God of Israel. Besides, they only have one God. We have many gods. And they're under our thumb. So here's the conclusion. Our gods are greater than their God. You know, when the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant, as we read about in Samuel's writings, uh, when they captured the Ark of the Covenant, as a sign of their victory, they took the Ark of the Covenant and they brought it to the temple of their own God and they placed the Ark of Covenant before their God, Dagon. What they were saying is this, we defeated that God. Our God is more powerful and their God will serve our God. And as you know, the story goes that when they got up in the morning, Dagon, their God, had fallen over in front of the Ark of the Covenant. So they stood him upright. They got up the next morning, and again, Dagon had fallen before the Lord in a posture like he was bowing, and his hands and his feet were broken off. Because our God 
Uh, Yahweh, Jehovah, is greater than the gods of this world. Pharaoh says, who's the Lord that I should obey his voice? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? And to me, that just, it, it brings up an interesting thought, you know. Should we be surprised, I would say, when people who don't know the Lord don't want to obey the Lord? I'll let you in on a little secret. Sinners sin, man. You and I sin. And we're saints purchased by the blood of Christ. And so, you know, we, we should never be surprised when a person who doesn't know Jesus lives a life that reflects they don't know the Lord. And in this culture where we're living, you know, the church has a tendency to make, I think, a crucial error in evangelism. And it's this. The church demands obedience to the Lord before it preaches knowledge of the Lord. See, it's knowledge first and obedience follows. And we got to be careful. We don't put the cart before the horse. Pharaoh doesn't know God. Pharaoh doesn't know the Lord. But he's about to have some power encounters with the Lord. We're going to see in the chapters to come. God is going to make himself known to Pharaoh. And, and Pharaoh will be faced like you and I are, like each one of us are. As God begins to reveal himself, we, may, we have a decision in front of us. Am I going to serve the Lord or am I going to reject the Lord? You know, I would say, just with some of those thoughts in mind, I would say, you know, the, my objective for our church, my objective as your pastor is not to teach you behavior modification. I'm not interested in changing. Well, I am interested in changing your behavior. but <laughs> I'm interested in my own behavior being changed. But my objective as your pastor is not to teach and proclaim behavior modification. My objective is this to lead us to, in my own life and in your life, to proclaim and teach a greater Jesus dependency. Because when your life is given to Jesus, when the negotiations stop, when the gospel and the decision to follow Jesus becomes the filter by which you make every decision in this life, Behavior modification and issues of obedience just begin to take care of themselves as people follow Jesus. See, as Jesus' dependency grows, the desire to be more like Jesus, the desire to reflect his character, to be motivated by love like Jesus was, um, r- rather than you know, just demanding obedience, becomes the thing that motivates us. Now look, the non-believer doesn't want to obey God because they don't know God. Kind of makes sense. And the solution is this. Tell them about God. Tell them about the deliverer. Tell them about the love of Jesus Christ. Tell them about slavery to sin and the fear of death and how Jesus Christ came to set them free so that they could know God and, and experience that freedom. He visited us to set us free. Now, verse 4, again, it says this. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. Verse 6. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, 
You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on them that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Now you have to see that this is Satan's plan. It's not only Pharaoh's plan for the children of Egypt, it's Satan's plan for you. Do you see that? You know, a couple weeks back when we were in Exodus chapter 3 and chatting about, you know, the burning bush encounter and Moses meeting with God and how... Um, we're all worshipers. That's the reality. You're a worshiper. God has designed you to worship. Your life is designed to bring glory to something, to bow its knee to something. And if you don't bow your knee to God, you will bow your knee to something else and you, you will worship it. And there's this thing for us as Christians, as followers of the living God, that we do this. As we go, grow in the Lord and we be, become familiar with the place of worship, we trade in our worship of the Lord for working for the Lord. Remember we were having that conversation a few weeks back. Where once in passion, we worship the Lord. Instead, we begin to do more and more things for the Lord. We work for the Lord. And if we're not careful, we lose the worship of the Lord in place of work. And as we saw in the story of Moses in, in the encounter, he took off his sandals and he came before the presence of God. And there is a time in our lives when we need to set aside work, take off the sandals, so to speak, and meet God at a holy place to worship him. Now, Pharaoh's game plan is a satanic game plan. What do God's people want? What's the request? He said this, we want to go and worship God. We, we want to go and offer sacrifices to the Lord. We, we want to take some time off and journey and consecrate some time to God so that we can worship the God of our fathers. They want to worship. See, they're already working. They're working hard. And they're asking for some time to be reserved for worship. And Pharaoh says, no. And to ensure that you don't worship, to ensure that you don't have time for worship, I'm going to crank up the expectation on you in regards to work. And he decides, you know, he is going to turn up the heat on them so much, so to speak, that they're never going to ask to worship ever again. That's his plan. He'll work them and he'll work them hard and they won't be able to worship. You know, when I read about some of the great heroes of the faith over the centuries, a couple guys I've read about in the last few years, you know, George Mueller, uh, George Whitfield, they were men that were hard-pressed. They worked hard for the Lord. It, 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 they were pressed in their working for the Lord. They, they went, you know, day and night almost, so to speak. But, you know, when you read their stories, as they were pressed by work, they did not abandon worship. But they said this, we can't afford not to worship. I can't afford not to have daily time with Jesus Christ. I can't afford not to go to the place of prayer because I have so much work to do. I can't get it done unless I first meet with Jesus. See, they didn't abandon the worship of God. They pressed into it. We read about Jesus. Jesus was busy, man. 
Don't forget that about his life. He, he was busy. He was so busy, the Bible tells us sometimes he didn't have time for sleep and sometimes he didn't have time to eat. He was so busy that at times he had to just purposely and, and, and with a goal get up early and leave the house before sunrise so that he could spend time with the Father, so that he could worship. And as you read his story, we know that that was his practice. He met with God daily. And so although his life was busy, you never get the sense that he was rushed. You never get the sense that he was hard-pressed. You never get the sense that he was hurried or out of time. We want to be worshipers. But Satan's going to try and make you busy. So busy that the daily quiet time, or so busy that corporate worship gatherings like Sunday morning or like a Wednesday night prayer meeting just can't fit into the busy schedule. You know, a Christian who is, is, is too busy to have a daily quiet time uh, with the Lord, a time of reading the word of God and a little bit of prayer and talking with God is like an Israelite who's just running around Egypt scrounging together stubble to try and make a few bricks. And I would say to you this morning, I think this the Spirit of God would say to us as we read the story, don't let work crowd out the worship. Because that's Satan's plan of slavery. He looks at you and he goes, oh, this person's starting to grow. This guy's starting to grow. This guy's beginning to invest himself in the Lord. This guy's beginning to read the word of God. All of a sudden, church has a new priority in their life. The people of God have a new priority in their life. Then this is what I'll do. I'll just start dropping more stuff on his plate. I'll just, mix, I'll just bring some resistance along. I'll just, I'll just put more stuff on his plate so that something has to give. And I'll get him. You know what he'll give? His time with God will give. He'll set it aside. I'll suck him into some lame excuse why he doesn't have time to come to church on Sunday. Or, where, or why a prayer meeting or men's discipleship or a ladies' Bible study just isn't worthy of a place in the schedule because he's just too busy. Look, we have to make time for worship. And I would say this. You will never be a more productive worker than when you make time to worship. You know, even on your day off, you know, Friday's my day off. I take, and if you guys know me, I like to, I like to work around my house on Friday. I'm like, pfft. I often don't step off the boundaries of my property unless I have to go to GBS to buy something. And then I make sure I get a tool at the same time. That's a man thing. And you know, there's, there's all these projects that I have to do and they're pressing on me and I say, oh, I got to get this done. I got to get that done. I got to get this done. And you know, I need to get started early on this. And you know, it's just so easy to say, it's your day off. Do the work. Set the worship aside. And, and I, have to, I have to fight and say to myself, worship first. Worship first. God will help you with the work. It'll get done. It'll be there another day Worship first. And now you think about these slaves. It's brutal for them. It's br they are hard-pressed, we read. You know that archaeology actually supports this. 
When they did digs in, in the ancient city of Pithom, they found this, that in the earlier development of the city, the bricks were made with straw. And as the city grew and the next layer went on, the bricks were made with stubble. And eventually, there was no straw or stubble in the bricks. They were just mud bricks. The process of making bricks is brutal, right? It's like, you know, get the mud, the water, the water, the dirt, the clay, whatever it is, throw in the straw, you know, you mix it all together with your feet and you pour it into a form and put it out in the sun and it dries there and you pop it out and, and, you, and it's just, in a sense that, you know, I would say the straw kind of functioned like fiber and carbon fiber, like fiber and fiberglass. It, it made the strength to the brick, but it also did this. That's why these new composite hockey sticks rock. They made them light. It made, it made them light, made bricks light. And so as you remove the straw and you replace stubble and eventually not even stubble, it's more than just the workload getting heavier. The bricks are getting heavier. It's getting heavier. And the workload is increased significantly so that these people do not have the opportunity to worship. Now verse 10 says, so the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it but your work will not be reduced in the least. This is brutal, right? Brutal picture. You get what's going on. Verse 12. <clears throat> so the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. And they're just running around, hurrying, trying to scrounge stuff together. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, complete your work. Your daily task each day as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them were beaten. And they asked, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, when do you treat your servants? Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but it is no fault. But the fault is in your own people. But he said, you are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you. But you must still deliver the same number of ricks. Then the foreman of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce the number of bricks, your daily task each day. Verse 20, they met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them and they came out from Pharaoh and they said to him, they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and you have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Like I said, no cakewalk, is it? No cakewalk for these people. A, a, a promise from God to deliver them, the hope of worship, the request to worship, and that is the desire of their heart. And there is a satanic resistance to that desire to want to worship. And the plan of resistance is this. Load the burden on the people. Burden them up. Increase the workload. Make it unbearable. And let me ask you this this morning. Any sense in any way that God's working in your life or doing something new lately? You know, maybe the following Jesus is, is new to you. 
Maybe reading the Bible is new. Maybe coming to church is new. And God has begun to move in your life and he's begun to work this act of deliverance in you. And all of a sudden, you say, whoa, what's going on here? <laughs> There's pushback. There's resistance. I, I, life is pushing back at me. Uh, work is pushing me. Uh, slavery seems to be, the battle against slavery seems to be harder now that Jesus is in my life. Well, you got two options on how to respond in the midst of that. And we see them in this story. First option is this. Then the foreman of the people of Israel came to Pharaoh and cried, why do you treat your servants like this? See, the officers of the children of Israel, their elders, their foremen, cried out to Pharaoh. In their trouble, in their trouble, the Israelites didn't go to Moses and they didn't go to God. They went to Pharaoh. Uh, they went to Pharaoh and, and instead as they, they looked at Pharaoh to solve their problems, they were disappointed and he said, you're idle, that's the problem. You are idle and you think you're feeling it now? Wait till I load more on you want to worship? I'll load more on. See, the children of Israel found no relief by going to Israel. And some Christians, kind of in the same way, you know, put themselves in the place where they go to Satan and say, help me with this grief. They respond by running to Satan for relief. And what does he give them? More bondage. You know, there's a word here in, in verse 21 that's been just sticking out to me since I began to look at this chapter. Look at verse 21 again. Let's read it. It says, and they said to them, the Lord, look on you and judge because you made us stink. It's the word stink. You made, you made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and you have put a sword in their hand to kill us. You know, Friday night, uh, we went to History Makers, uh, not a big group, 13 of us from the church. There was 10 kids, and there was me and Blake Simpson, and there were six boys. And we're out at Cherish Bible Camp, and they put us into one room together, all eight guys, bunk beds. And during the night, with eight dudes in a room, some knucklehead <laughs> closes the window. That's a bad scene, okay? All these boys sweating. You know, I've been sick. My head is congested. I can't breathe through my nose. All night, I'm breathing through my mouth, you know? I even woke up, I needed to drink water because my throat and my mouth is so dry. And I get up in the morning and my head is congested, but I'm telling you, that room stunk. I felt like I stunk. It was hot and sweaty in there. And I'm like, could someone please open the window? Who closed the window? Okay. It stunk because there was eight dudes in that room with no fresh air. Now, 2 Corinthians tells us this. That as followers of Jesus Christ, our lives have an odor. That to some, we're the fragrance of life, and to others, we're the smell of death. Friday night, smell of death, definitely. <laughs> to some, we are the smell of Jesus. And to others, we are the odor and the fragrance of death. To some, you know, they smell eternity. They smell eternal life. They smell Jesus. To, to others, like I said, it's the smell of death. Our, our lives to them remind them that they're separated from God by sin. 
And, and, and rather than being drawn to Jesus, they smell us and they go, eh. they're repelled from Jesus. It, it's not something about us. It's actually something about their own sniffers, their own nose. They're, they're either drawn or they're repelled. It's either the fragrance. It's the same smell, but it, for some, it's the fragrance of life. For some, it's the fragrance of death. And I find it interesting that when the Israelites went to Pharaoh with their complaint, it, it's too much. <laughs> their lives begin to stink. So we have become to, in Pharaoh, in the sight of the Egyptians, in the sight of Satan, in, in the sight of this world, our lives are stinking. In other words, those, those, these people, the children of Israel, the, the, the nation who was called to serve God, uh, who were to represent God, when they took their troubles to the wrong source, they became stinky and smell in the sight of the world. And look at, you know, this tells me this. When life is pressing and there is resistance and the workload is, the heat is being turned up, we need to be very aware of where we begin to run. You know, do we light up a joint like the world? Do we run to the liquor store for some relief? Do we go to the fridge and, you know, indulge in overeating or lay on the couch and just begin to veg out in front of the television? And I, I might say, you know, if, if that's the case, when life presses and that's where we run, what makes us any different? I mean, we all go to these different places at times, but, well, not quite. But maybe at one time, um, if that's the case, what makes us any difference? See, where we run when we're pressed affects the way we smell. It affects the way the world interprets our relationship with God. Will we be the fragrance of Jesus Christ, the, the fragrance of life or the smell, the stink of death. The elders of Israel, as they were pressed, the foreman went to Pharaoh and he said, you're idle and you're smelly and I'm not lifting the load. Look at verse 22, last two verses. Then Moses turned to the Lord. This is option number two. Option number one is you go to Pharaoh. Option number two, and you should underline it in your Bible, is this. Then Moses turned to the Lord. And said, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Look at Moses did not have this whole story and situation figured out. He wasn't the picture perfect version of the life of faith yet and what steadfast faith was. He did not comprehend or fully understand all that God was working in this uh, exodus from Egypt and in this story of deliverance. In fact, I would say as you read this, he forgot the very words that he had already been told because God had told him it's going to take a mighty hand. It is going to take a mighty hand to bring these people out. Oh, really? I thought it was one appearance. Let my people go. No, Moses had forgotten even the very word of God that it would have been spoken to him. And you know, you and I are so much like that. We forget what God's word says. We forget the promises to us. 
But I will say this about Moses, and he is an awesome example for us. When he was pressed, when he faced resistance, when the work piled up for him, he knew where to turn. He turned to the Lord. He turned to the Lord. See, God's already told him, this is a mighty work. Moses, you were something, you were nothing, and I'm going to make something out of nothing. This isn't you going before Pharaoh with a word. This is me working a story of deliverance for a nation, for a people. Cakewalk? No. Resistance? Yes. But in the midst of it, I'm with you. In the midst of it, I'm, we're going to see in chapter five, the Lord's just going to, in fact, I would encourage you after this morning, go home and read chapter five and you watch what the Lord says in response to Moses. He says, I am going to do this. I will. I, 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 I will act, Moses. I will act. And I would say to you, look it, follow Jesus, cakewalk, Uh uh-uh. Don't know where you, don't know where you're at in that. Maybe you're totally new. Maybe you've been here for a long time. Maybe you've been following Jesus for a long time. Look it. If you were thinking cakewalk, I'm sorry to disappoint you this morning, but we need to know the reality. It's not a cakewalk. But in the midst of that, if you know where to turn, if like Moses, you'll turn to God, if you'll surrender to Jesus in the midst even of resistance, Your life will be the fragrance of Christ. Your life will bring glory to God. The sweet smell of everlasting eternal life will be the perfume that comes off your your life. If, If you make room to worship, even though life might press you, it will not crush you. I promise you. God promise you. You make room to worship, you will not be crushed even when life presses. And so, you know, chapter five, this incredible encounter coming before Moses, but these great lessons to turn from work, to make worship a priority. And then when you're pressed to know where to turn with it, to know where to turn. May our lives be the fragrance of Christ. I invite Trish to come.